Did MD Anderson believe the results of their study enough to buy? And sure enough, they bought one and then two and then three and then seven. And they became a big user, which told us they actually believed their own published science and were willing to spend their money on it. And since then, we've expanded one hospital at a time. And literally the best hospitals in America, whether it's Stanford or Mayo Clinic or Honor Health or MD Anderson, all of the top hospitals are using this product because it works so much better than traditional manual housekeeping. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with an old friend, Morris Miller. Morris Miller was the managing director at Rackspace when I started there in 2001. He's now the managing partner at Tectonic Ventures, a VC firm that invests in mission-driven business-to-business startups based out of San Antonio, Texas. He's also the CEO of Xenix Disinfection Services. And he met the PhD, the two PhDs who founded that business, and one of the things we talk about is how success or the businesses that he's drawn to, the success that he's drawn to is mission driven. And so he met these guys who they've got UV germ zapping robots that they put in and it's massively better than cleaning, mopping, bleaching, the way that hospitals would normally try to clean rooms and stop the spread of superbugs or even COVID. So we chat a bit about that chat a bit about his venture capital business, that businesses take time, that many of the business that he's been involved in or I've been involved in have become overnight successes after they've been in business for maybe 10 years. And we talk about how maybe two of the pillars of that overnight success are listening to customers and the talent density you manage to amass. So fantastic conversation with Morris. I always enjoy talking to him. I enjoyed chatting with him again today. I'm sure you'll enjoy listening to us. Hi, Dom. I'm Morris Miller from San Antonio, Texas. That's in the United States across the continent. I'm the CEO of Zenex Disinfection Services. We make a germ zapping robot. Uh, we're the leader in the world. The robot is used in hospitals, more than uh, 950, really almost 1,000 hospitals around the world to wipe out the pathogens that cause pain and suffering and needless deaths in patients. I'm also a partner with uh, Matt Rhodescroft and Juan Leung Lee in Tectonic Ventures. We're a venture fund that invests in business-to-business startups. And uh, not only do we invest in them, but as you and I have done for many years, we coach them, work with them, and really try to uh, lead them to uh, 
be the greatest successes that they can be. Fantastic. And but there's you've missed one out. Uh, you've missed out the golf balls. Should we, should we just come back to that later? Yeah, no, yeah, and I'm uh, I'm on the uh, board and a, a large shareholder in golfballs.com. We're the world leader in golf customization. We sell more golf balls, golf equipment online than anybody in the world, and we have a phenomenal, amazing CEO, Tom Cox, that's run out of uh, Lafayette, Louisiana, which is Cajun country in the United States, so they have the best Cajun food in the world. Fantastic. You've been in the golf ball thing for ages and it always tickles me, always tickles me. But like everything else, it's the biggest and the best in the world. Yeah. You know, when I got involved with uh, Tom and the company, and there's another fellow there, Robin, that does a lot of our programming, who's a genius. It was a small company. And at that time, the company was doing a lot of business to consumer. And people will talk about B2C or B2B, and it's never really clear, I don't think, to audience members what that means. But in, in this case, they were advertising and normal golfers around the world were buying golf balls from them. So that's B2C. And we really felt like we should focus on B2B, business to business, because that's really, uh, if you think historically about what you've done and what I've done, it's always leading a company that sells to other businesses that then sell to consumers. And that's what we do. So we sell to big investment banks, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, people and companies like that, that then love providing golf balls to their customers to keep top of mind because there's nothing greater than a day on the golf course. And when you can do it with your own customized golf balls from a prominent bank, that's as good as it gets. <laughs> Excellent. But look, let me let me pick your brains a little bit on the germ zapping robot because you spotted it somewhere and you ended up getting the rights to it and you believe in it. You are trying to change the world. Yeah, th this was uh, uh, the company was actually founded by two Johns Hopkins PhD epidemiologists, Dr. Mark Stibick and Dr. Julie Stahoviak, both of them brilliant. They had looked at what was happening in healthcare. And many people don't know that hospitals are still cleaned primarily with bleach and ammonia and hydrogen peroxide chemicals. And it hasn't been very effective at preventing the spread of really killer pathogens. People call them superbugs, but these are things like MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, vancomycin-resistant enterococci, carbapenem-resistant enterococci. There's these terrible things and there are no antibiotics to fight them. And that's the real issue, is that we're running out of antibiotics to fight these infections that people are getting. So the miracle of penicillin, if we don't stop the infections from happening, we won't have anything to treat them. So that's what they were looking at. And they figured out that most companies that were kind of building these new kinds of disinfection machines were using mercury light bulbs. In fact, all of them were. And to this day, almost all of them are, except for Xenex. And their innovation was they could take a xenon lamp, it's about a 12-inch lamp, and they would pulse it with high power. And instead of putting out a single wavelength of low-intensity light, it covered the, hot, the entire germicidal spectrum of UVC light, and it was 4,300 times more intense. And the analogy that I make that people understand 
you know, everybody's seen children two or three years old driving around in little toy cars, like these little plastic cars that they recycle the battery. And imagine that car crashing into the side of your garage and just kind of bouncing off. And it would be very funny. It wouldn't do any damage to your garage. If you take something that's 4,300 times more intense, that would be like loading an 18-wheeler and crashing it into your garage at 120 miles an hour, which would completely wipe out your house. (laughs) And that's the difference in what we do to pathogens versus the old way of making UV light. So that was their innovation. And when they went into their very first hospital, the number one cancer hospital, certainly in the United States, maybe one of the top ones in the world, MD Anderson, this proved to be 22 times better, 22 times fewer pathogens on the surfaces than when they cleaned the rooms manually, the way they always have. And uh, after MD Anderson did that study, the founders took the robots back, right? They didn't leave them at MD Anderson. And then we sat by to see, did MD Anderson believe the results of their study enough to buy? And sure enough, they bought one and then two and then three and then seven. And they became a big user, which told us they actually believed their own published science and were willing to spend their money on it. And since then, we've expanded one hospital at a time. And literally the best hospitals in America, whether it's Stanford or Mayo Clinic or Honor Health or MD Anderson, all of the top hospitals are using this product because it works so much better than traditional manual housekeeping. And and it's just worth a footnote, they still do housekeeping. So they get rid of all of the visible dirt and grime, um, but they're relying on the robots to really reduce the pathogens. And you didn't invest. I mean, it's your, you're the founder, you're the CEO. At this point, I'm a co-founder with them, but they're the founders, uh, along with another brilliant guy named Brian Kruver, who really helped solidify the vision and put it all together. We ended up moving the company to San Antonio, I think, in part because you and I have so many contacts in San Antonio, it it made sense to move it back here. And uh, we did that, and we've just been methodically growing it, really, over the past 10 or 12 years. What made you want to make this? something to put the next 10 years of your life into. Why healthcare? Well, so, so when I asked, uh, and this is a frequent question that I'll ask the founders, I'll say, well, what is your mission? What is your mission? And, and you and I know from Rackspace, I mean, it was about fanatical support. Anything you could do to take care of the customer, we wanted to do. Well, in this case, I asked him, I said, what's your mission? And, and, and Julie looked at me and she goes, Morris, we want to stop the needless pain and suffering that's caused by these infections. And we want to stop the needless deaths that are caused by these infections. And I said, well, like in the United States, how big of a problem is this? And she said, 2 million people a year go into the hospital to get well. And instead, they come out with an infection. And 100,000 of them die. She's like, and we want to make an impact on that. We want to stop that. Dom, that's what got me. And I was like, okay, I want to help you. That is something you think about. The idea of we're given all of these gifts as human. This will sound, I mean, kind of too deep, but we're given a lot of gifts as human beings in terms of education and background and good families and food and all, all these gifts. And we owe it to the world to leave it better than when we found it. And I think this is a great way to do it. Is it the way in which the supply chain is put together that the expense in one part doesn't see 
you know, that, that it's just not connected. So like we're, if we spend more on this, the people who spend the bit on that don't see the saving over here? Or is it just that it's so disconnected that you're not mostly at a high enough level, people can't see that this is something they want to get involved in and fix? I think that's a great insight. I think there's a gap between the decision makers and the implementers. So first of all, we dominate the VA hospitals, the Veteran Administration Hospitals in the United States. We're in about 130 of those hospitals, and we have 30 Department of Defense facilities. So there, the top down is very clear. So in the UK, the fact that the NHS hasn't deployed our robots in all of their hospitals the way that the VA has, it's crazy. It's costing British taxpayers money. It's costing the government money. It's costing the NHS money. And we can prove it. It's like somehow there's a disconnect in that bureaucracy that hasn't existed over here in the VA system. And, uh, and we're just working on it one hospital at a time. How many hospitals are you in in the UK? I think we're in three or four. You know, I, know, I know we were in King's Hospital. We were in Queen's Hospital. We were in Birmingham and uh, one other that doesn't come to the top of my head. But it's like the NHS is so big and it's monolithic in terms of the ship that they're trying to turn. What the U.S. system did that's different than the NHS is every VA hospital stands on its own. So there is no monolithic decision making. And therefore, you can go and leverage, like, look what happened here. I testified before Congress when they had dramatically reduced their pathogens and uh, were having tremendous results. And uh, really, two VAs did that, Muskogee and, uh, and another one. So I reported that to Congress, and then we were able to go really leverage that with other VA systems, and they started buying and getting the similar results. And also, remember, there are 10 or 11 things that go into disinfecting and keeping a safe environment. So it's hand hygiene, it's antibiotic stewardship, You know, making sure you're not overusing antibiotics. So I'm not here to say that this is the only thing you need to do. You need to continue to do all of your other processes properly. And then it just turns out this is the icing on the cake that, at least from what we've seen, coalesces it all, brings it all together and gets the results the hospitals have so desperately wanted. Did you see the same passion in when you were funding the business that became Rackspace? Did you see the same passion in the three guys then? Is that why you, you put your money in? So I met Richard, Pat, and Dirk, and I asked Richard on the first day, first of all, Richard, I don't know if you remember, but Richard talks faster than anybody that I've ever met in my life. He can talk so fast to the extent that I remember laughing and saying, Richard, please slow down. We're not in a rush to finish the conversation. But I asked Richard, I said, well, tell me what your mission is. Tell me your vision. And Richard very smartly looked at me and he said, well, have you heard Bill Gates say that there's going to be a computer on every desktop? And I said, yeah, I've heard that. He goes, well, every company is going to have multiple internet servers. And I said, oh, like multiple web servers. And he goes, no, no, internet servers. And I go, well, what's the difference between an internet server and a web server? He goes, oh my God, come on, Morse. He goes, web is one application on the internet. And I said, well, when you're talking about applications, what other applications are there that I should know about? He goes, do you use email? And I said, oh, yeah, I just started using email. He goes, that runs on an email server. He goes, we have our own email server. And the name of his company at the time was Scimitar, C-Y-M-I-T-A-R. And I go, okay, so you have an email server. 
And he goes, yeah, he goes, that runs on its own server. He goes, my server, he goes, how often does your computer crash? And I go, uh, twice a day. And he goes, my email server hasn't crashed in over three years. And I said, okay. So right away, I know that number one, he had a vision because every company was going to have multiple internet servers. Number two, he understood the technical differences between web and internet and email and all these things. And number three, he had technical proficiency because anybody that can keep a computer running with no downtime for three years, that's a pretty good feat, even in today's day and age. And that was when I was like, okay, you and I both know Graham at Weston. And you know, I immediately called Graham and I said, I'm going to give you a list of questions. And I'd like you to ask the founders these same questions. And I just want to listen for consistency and see, were they BSing me or did they really know their stuff? And he kind of laughed and he said, all right, let's do it. And he asked the questions and their answers were completely consistent. They just knew their stuff. So it was competency, it was consistency, and it was mission driven. Now, clearly, they didn't know fanatical support at that point in time, but it didn't take us too long. You know, it took us maybe two or three years to really nail that down as the uh, distinction and the difference. But it was that passion and that enthusiasm that got me. And so two things questions it's bring to mind. So those guys were senior in the business for a period and then other people ended up in more senior roles than them. Like does that always happen to founders as businesses scale? Well well it's interesting. I'm, I'm not gonna attribute, but I once went and in, in one of the most prominent venture firms in uh, Silicon Valley, not Sequoia, not Norwest who who funded us, but another firm I was at a venture capital conference and uh, somebody said, well, what is your secret to venture capital? And he leaned into the mic and this leader who everybody knows there, his name, he said at this very small group, he goes, it's never too early to fire the founders. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, the arrogance of that. Because if you look at some of the world's greatest corporations, I mean, let, let's just take a few Dell computer. Dell Computer is led by brilliant Michael Dell. And Larry Ellison still leads Oracle. Steve and Bill led Microsoft. It's like so many phenomenal businesses were led by their founders when they didn't try to kick them out. And the antithesis of that was Apple, who did kick out Steve Jobs, and they had a lot of problems. And then he came back and he fulfilled the vision of what it could be. So I think the exact opposite. And I don't know if you remember this, but when when Richard wanted to step away from the CEO role, because he was like, Morris, I want you to be CEO because I really just want to focus on my technical stuff. I said to him, I said, you know, Richard, it's easy to forget later on that you wanted to make a change. And sometimes you'll feel like you were pushed out, even if it was your suggestion. So the answer is no. And you need to ask three more times. And if you ask three more times, you're going to get three more no's. And on the fourth time, you'll get a yes. And I forced him to do that. And I've done that a number of times with founders who wanted to exit a role where literally they have to ask multiple times on different days, sometimes different weeks, so that really they can look back and go, that was their decision and not an investor or anybody else. That's really why, I mean, we're great friends to this day. It's, it's interesting because often people in their heads haven't separated income, equity, and control. I was on the phone to a CEO a few months ago, and I said, why are you talking to me? And he said, I just hate this job. I'm the CEO. I hate it. It's like, it's just miserable. 
And I said, well, don't do it anymore. He's like, what do you mean? I said, well, you don't have to be the CEO. He's like, what do you mean? And I said, well, if you hate it, why don't you just be take the job in the company that you enjoy doing and do that? You'll still own the company. And he's like, oh, is that a thing? And he just, it's just, you know, it's working out what what you where you can add the most value and doing that because it'll be mu- you'll be much better off. Don't hang on to a job because you don't want it. And also ask four times so you don't remember feeling like you got ousted. Exactly. To me, that's a real sort of secret. It's a gift and, and it's allowed me to maintain multiple relationships across companies because people have never felt rushed or ousted because generally there is never a rush to do anything. There's very few decisions that have to be made overnight where something's going to dramatically change in terms of the business trajectory. So, you know, whenever I look at charts, you know, business performance, uh, you know, you look at Apple and it was it, it was around for a long time and then it you know, 25 years and then it grew exponentially. And the same with Starbucks. It For a long, long time, you know, they had X number of stores and then there was an exponential growth. And Rackspace, we were finding our feet for quite a while before it went mad. Yeah. One saying that, that I've adopted and I say it frequently is that it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. <laughs> And I think that entrepreneurs frequently think that things are just supposed to happen. You get it started and you put up your your shingle and it's just going to happen. And there are a few stories where that has happened. I remember Michael Dell came back after one year in business. So we were both freshmen at UT at the same time. And then he came back when we were sophomores and he was in Dr. Eddie's uh, entrepreneurship class lecturing to us. He finishes the whole story, but he never said his revenues. And I held up my hand and I said, Michael, I'm just just curious, what were y'all's revenues for the first year? And he said, well, I don't know exactly. We're really not disclosed. I said, well, give me a ballpark. And he said, "Uh, first year, maybe uh, 25 million. And I was like, whoa. And if I had known that he was going to accomplish, I should have said, okay, forget school. I'm with you. (laughs) Uh, But but I I didn't know at the time. But uh, uh, I mean, he fulfilled every vision he could for that business. It takes patience. So that, that was an example of overnight success. You know, here at Zenix, I've repeated this 10 year, it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. And clearly we had become the worldwide market leader. And then when COVID hit, that just blew every projection we had through the roof because people wanted to buy the robot with the best efficacy, with the biggest installed customer base. We have more studies at that time, we had more studies than every peer company combined. You could add them all up, and we still had more just because it had proven to work exceptionally well in those hospitals. What do you think are some of these sort of fundamental pillars in these overnight success businesses, you know, 10 years? What are the essentials that you just have to get right over and over and over again? I mean, you, you talked about having a mission that, you know, gives you a North Star and unites the organization. Yeah, I think that, first of all, you have to be in touch with your customers and uh, you have to be willing to get on the phone with customers and listen to customers. So so a good example in Zenex, about five years ago, six years ago, I went and we had brought on a VP of sales and I said, we're going to do 20 sales calls in the next 60 days. So get them scheduled because I'm going to go on the road with you until you know everything about the product as much as I do. So that was a big commitment. And as we were in the market, we would constantly hear, I'd listen to people and they'd say, okay, so you're with uh, Xenix? 
And I'd say, well, Xenex, it's a palindrome, X-E-N-E-X. And they'd say, oh, uh, Xnet. I go, no. I'd say Xenex. And they'd say Z-E-N-E-X. And I'd say, no, Xenex, X-E-N-E-X. Oh, Xanex, X-A-N-A. And I'm like, no, no. And so when we came back from these sales calls, I said to the founders and to the marketing team, I'm like, look, I love the name Xenex. I understand it's based on xenon light, xenon lamps. So I understand where it came from and I like the way it looks. I said, but it's hard for people to remember. So let's find a more memorable name, something that people will go, oh, yeah, I know what that is. And we, we worked for a number of months with a firm and we came up with the name Light Strike. And we have the trademarks on Light Strike. We have the trademarks on Strike. We have the trademarks on intensity because our light is so much more intense than anything else on the market. And that's really what we focused on. And now when we go into sales calls, they'll say, oh, you know, we love our light strike robots. And they may or may not be able to say Xenex or Xanax or whatever they want, however they want to call us correctly, but it's listening. Today, I was on with the entire um, sales team. And I said to them, I said, you know, we've been in business for a dozen years. And we've now released our LS6, our Light Strike 6. That's the sixth version of a robot in just over 10 years. There isn't usually that kind of innovation in healthcare. And my team, the, the product development team, they just keep listening to the customer and incorporating more and more things. Some of these are remarkably simple, but nobody changes. So like when we started, everybody carried around a remote control or they carried around a pad in order to start the robot. Well, they would consistently lose the remote <laughs> controls where they would drop them and we would end up overnighting them. And then the housekeepers felt bad that it cost the hospital money. And we just said, you know what? We've got to build all that into the robot. So now on our robots, the pad is built into the robot and the cones, the motion cones and the safety cones, they all nestle right into the side of the robot. So as long as they're pushing the robot, They've got everything they're going to need to operate it. They don't have to carry anything else, and they're not going to lose even one piece. So it's that kind of thinking and listening to the customers. And, and you'll remember this at Rackspace. We did the same thing with you know, servers and load balancers and firewalls and multiple configurations and automatic failover between data centers. That's what our customers needed, and we made sure that we could provide it, and I thought, David Bryce did a great job of uh, figuring out what was in our spheres of support and what was outside our spheres of support. And we were good at telling a customer, we'll do all of these things and we won't do those things. And we were very transparent. An inch wide and a mile deep. Yes. But also the no automated phone system, probably because when we started with that, we didn't have one and we didn't want to spend the money putting one in. Turns out there was a major customer benefit and all our engineers were very good. So you will never talk to a level one engineer. So there's actually a great story about that is, is I had talked to Richard over and over when we started the company about scaling, scaling, scaling. You have to build a company to scale, build it to scale. So one day I called and there was a voice, uh, there was a voice treat. And it said, for sales, dial one. For customer service, dial two. If you'd like to speak to somebody in customer support, dial three. And I was like, okay, uh, I don't like that. And I called Richard and I said, get rid of the automated attendant. And Richard, you know Richard, he goes, dude, what are you talking about? He says, you've been talking to me about scaling. We can't constantly answer the phone. I go, companies have been answering the phone for the last 100 years. I said, Southwest Airlines always tries to answer the phone, you know, at one ring, two rings, three rings, if they can. 
if the world's or the United States, you know, one of the top five airlines can do it, we can do it too. Get rid of it. And I said, the only time somebody's going to call us is when they want to buy something or when they need help with something. And in both of those cases, we should treat them the same. And I said, you know, have you ever enjoyed being put on hold by the cable company or the phone company or an airlines or a hotel? I don't think so. And that's why we got rid of it and we never brought it back. And I do think that that ended up, I thought everybody was going to copy that. I think they should copy that to this day, but they don't. It's amazing. When I got to Pier 1, we had a phone system and the on-hold times were about two and a half minutes. Mm. So I said to the shift managers, look, here's what we're going to do. We've got CLI, right? So we know who hangs up whilst they're on hold. So here's what you're going to do. Every time you come in after previous shift, you're going to get the report and you're going to ring up those customers and you're going to say, sorry, did we manage to help you? And we're going to talk about this every day. And they hated me. And in three weeks, we were down to under 30 seconds because they just hated speaking to those customers. And they, they solved the problem. Yep. Yep. Excellent. Yep. Oh, brilliant. What else about hiring people? You've hired a few people along the way, Morris. Yeah, I'm sure you remember top grading. You, you said that you've had uh, uh, Dr. Smart on the uh, show before. So to this day, I still use top grading. We had talked about it. I've never seen somebody cry as a result of it. <laughs> the two quick concepts from that, you know, chronological in-depth survey, which just means starting with somebody from middle school, high school, what did you do? How did you focus? You know, where did you spend your time? How did you do? Somebody's a great football player, but they did okay in college, or they did okay in high school, but then they played football in college and went to the pros. Well, you'd go, okay, well, clearly they were better off focusing on athletics at that moment. And then when they finally did go to college, they got a 4-0 versus somebody who was completely academic and got a 4-0 in high school and college and graduate school, but never did any athletics. And starting at the beginning, I find consistently gets their story out. And I think frequently people will look at me and look like, why are you asking me about high school? And yet it all starts there because your personality is pretty much formed and uh, your work ethic in many ways is solidified by that point in time. And then, and then the second concept is threat of reference check, which I don't really consider it a threat. I just like asking people, who did you work for? What would they say about you? Why would they say that? When was the last time you talked to them? When I saw your book and I wrote you, we talked a week later, and I felt like I had seen you a week ago. Got along with you just as well as we did in the past. And I think with good relationships with people that work hard um, with you, I think that that's, that esprit de corps remains pretty much forever. And it's very telling when somebody says, God, I don't really remember who I worked for. And basically, I go, eh, I don't believe that. It's like, I think everybody knows who they worked for. And even if it didn't go well, you could tell me, well, it didn't go well, and here's why. And I'm happy to listen to that. But I, th I think that is a, is a very important book and a very important approach. And then secondly, I think people overlook the idea of finding passionate people. It's like you can feel when somebody has passion, both for life and for their job and for solving problems and serving customers. And you're really digging to find people who really want to do a good job for other people and who just take pride in a job well done. And uh, not everybody is driven that way. And it's important to 
steer people that aren't passionate towards careers that don't involve you or me. (laughs) I don't care what people are passionate about, but I can't make unpassionate people or people who lack passion of any kind passionate. That's not my role in life. So, you know, I mean, I've hired all sorts of people who've got crazy hobbies and uh, they're great because they can get passionate about something. So maybe we could harness that that innate ability to get passionate about our mission. Do they want to be on the bus or not? On your bus, there's a, uh, God, what is the book? Uh, not the magic bus, um, the purple. It's uh, a yellow book, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, it and it's, about, it's about a guy who takes over a software development team. Right, right. And, and it's about getting the right people on the bus. And, and I think people underestimate just how positive an effect it has when everybody wants to be on the bus. And probably more importantly, how negative it is when you have people that don't want to be on the bus. You might not be able to pinpoint why, but you need to pay attention to the feelings because you will feel it. You'll feel it when it's not a fit on the bus. And nobody ever said, man, I wish I'd given them longer. They only ever say, I wish I'd got rid of them sooner. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Morris, what is it that you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Well, I'll tell it to you through a story is that when I started, before I started my first company, there was a gentleman here in town named Baker Duncan. And, uh, and I went and I met with him and I told him I couldn't get my first company off the ground. I had presented my business plan 168 times. I had gotten rejected 168 times. And I told him, I said, you know, I'm going to go to business school and figure out what I don't know about business. And Baker, who literally, he was the headmaster at a prep school called Woodbury Forest. And he had these, he's about six foot seven. So he's very towering man. He had these big black glasses. And he looks at me in his bellowing voice and he says, Morris, you don't get it. And I said, what? And he goes, he goes, if you think that's why you're going to business school, you don't get it. And I said, well, what do I not get? He goes, if I have to tell you, you're not old enough or mature enough to learn it. (laughs) So he said, where do you want to go to business school? And I said, well, I'd like to go to Georgetown in Washington, D.C. And he goes, well, I imagine you'll get in there. I said, would you be willing to write me a letter of recommendation? And he said, sure. And I said, all right, well, I'm also going to apply to these other schools. He goes, do you want to go to those other schools? And I said, well, not as much as Georgetown. He goes, then I'm going to write your letter for Georgetown. And I said. Okay. So I get into Georgetown and uh, I pay my fee. And then after about uh, three weeks of living in Washington, D.C., I get called by one of those 168 investors who says, I looked at your business plan. It's great. I've checked all your resources. I'm in. And I was like, whoa. So I called up the dean of the school and I said, okay, I just got my business plan funded. And the dean's like, we'll hold your place in line. You can come back anytime you want. You go and start that company and come back and tell us the story. So I left, we started the company, jumped forward about six months later, and we had about 30 employees. We had 16 in sales. I had six or seven in processing. I had customer service. We had somebody answering the phone. All of the positions were filled. And I remember sitting in my office and thinking, wow, I could get hit by a bus And literally, this company would do just fine. Like, everybody understood what they were supposed to do. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, wow, it is all about the people. 
it is all about the people. And uh, so I sat down and I pulled out a piece of paper and I typed up a letter and I said, Dear Baker, you were right. The reason to go to business school would have been for the people who I would have met, the people who I would have interacted with, having this company and now having 30 employees that are making it happen every day. I firmly realize it is all about the people. Thanks for the lesson. And I sent that off to him. And in a very Baker style, about a week later, I get a big yellow envelope and inside it is my letter that's torn open. And on the back of my letter in big magic marker print, it says, Morris, you learned well, Baker. (laughs) And that was really it. And that's been the lesson ever since that day. It's all about leader. It's all about people. And it's about trying to lead them as best you can. I do like one of Graham's saying was, you have to get people to volunteer to come to work every day. And I believe that. You really, people do not work for pay. They just don't. They work for people that they like to work with. They work on missions that they want to work for. uh, So they have to want to volunteer. And then the second thing is something that I learned from Roy Martin, who uh, just said, you lead people, you manage things. And at the time I was like, what? And he said, you manage budgets, you manage inventory, you uh, manage your expense line. He said, but when it comes to people, you just lead them. Make sure you're being consistent, you're being fair, everybody knows what they're expected to do, you're paying attention and uh, complimenting them when they do a great job. And he's like, that's all you have to know. And and I think think that's been it. So it's all about the people and I think uh, uh, leading. Excellent. We've talked about top grading. You've mentioned my book, F Plan B. Other than those, what's impacted you along the way or are you reading now that you're enjoying? When I was in high school, my dad gave me a book called Positioning the Battle for Your Mind. And uh, uh, that's a marketing book. Reese and Trout invented the idea of positioning. We use that at Rackspace uh, multiple times to come up with our sort of value statement or unique value proposition, unique selling proposition, USP. You know, so at first we were uh, dedicated servers for business. We were the uh, managed hosting specialist and it eventually we became managed hosting with fanatical support. So that book, I read it multiple times. So, so that was one by recent trout. Another one that they wrote that I think is phenomenal is called the 22 immutable laws of marketing. I think that's a great book. And then there's actually, I think people often get confused about design. And there's actually a book called The Non-Designer's Design Book. And it's a very thin book, but it really explains the elements of design. And once you understand it, every web page you go, oh, they're following the rules of design. Same thing goes for every print publication. And that's how people consume information easily. So I think those are the books that I focus on and that I reread I mean, there, there's all sorts of great, uh, the Gallup books in terms of uh, strength finders. Those are great books that I use over and over to this day. And one thing that I didn't speak about or didn't talk to you about when we were talking about Rackspace was you were insistent that we call the network the 100% uptime network. Zero downtime. Zero, sorry, zero downtime. And it, and it was so, and the engineers were like, yeah, but it's not really zero. It's, you know, it's going to be 99.99. Da, da, da. And it, and it, and that, that sort of internal debate that we had about what are we going to call it? And then what's the, how do we guarantee it? What's our skin in the game? Right. That's one of those things that very few companies put in place. 
Right. And, and we did guarantee it. And, and, and I thought Lanham did a great job of carrying that message forward to the people. And if you think about it, I, you might remember when um, in Dallas, a truck crashed into the data center and it caused a tremendous amount of downtime. And uh, I don't remember the exact dollar amount, but I thought it was more than a $3 million that we wrote checks or credited customers for the downtime that they experienced, even though it was a natural calamity and probably under the contract, it would have been a force majeure event. And you know what? It doesn't matter. It's like if the customer was adversely affected. You know, I often think about airlines. One of the reasons I think Southwest Airlines is so successful is because when they mess up, and they do occasionally mess up, they figure out how to make it right by you. They'll say, look, we can't get you to your destination on time, but we've got four other routes that we can put you on. And we will figure out along the way, what's the optimum way to get you there as close to your arrival time as possible, if you're willing to work with us. And I just, as a result of that, I love that airlines versus an airline saying, nope, sorry, that's flight's canceled. Uh, We'll reschedule you in two weeks. It's just that lack of empathy that I just feel it and it it doesn't engender loyalty at all. At Xenix, do you have a promise and guarantee? We do. We've been willing to go to hospitals and talk to them about what their goals are. And we have guaranteed them that they will meet their goals. And if they don't, we won't even send them a bill. So we're willing to put these $100,000 robots into the hospitals, $100,000 plus, without any remuneration until the hospital achieves its goals. And we sit down with them and we go through them in detail. Because remember, if you bought the robots and you didn't use them, you won't achieve your goals. So they have to use them. And we come up with a standard operating plan with them. But literally, every time we've worked out a deal with the hospitals, we have helped the hospital achieve their goal, and therefore we get paid. So I don't lose one bit of sleep that we're not going to get paid when we've entered into an agreement with a hospital that they'll reach their goals. Fantastic. I think that's one of those things that sticks with me. And so few people are prepared to, the accountants get involved and they worry about the risk. And it's not a risk at all. If you're on a mission and you believe in your product and your product's any good, right? I mean, <laughs> when we went to MD Anderson, I didn't know what it would do. And if they had said, well, will you guarantee us results? I would have said, I don't know. We've never seen it in action in a hospital. So I will after you run your trial. But after we saw that it was 22 times better than the existing way of cleaning and disinfecting hospital rooms, it's been a no brainer ever since. And typically, you know, the hospitals are very concerned with return on investment. And typically, they'll get a six or a nine times return on investment. And therefore, I feel great about that. It's like they're getting a return on investment. They're helping patients. It's good for us. There isn't a single entity that loses other than the pathogens. The pathogens are losers. And I'm happy about that. (laughs) Morris, that's a great place to finish. Thank you very much indeed for coming on. Great to have you. Great. Thanks, Tom. Really nice to see you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. 
There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.